Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so thankful to have you join us here today for our discussion of 1981's The Evil Dead. This is exciting. I want you to know, listeners, that we're going to make our way through the the official Evil Dead franchise. And so we'll, you know, be every couple of episodes uh, bringing uh, the next installment to all the way up through the um, sadly canceled, much before its time, uh, Ash versus Evil Dead. Yeah, at the time of us recording this, I have not seen that show yet. So I'm looking forward to, as we're working our way through all the Evil Dead, also me catching up on some of the evil dead things that i have missed and i think what what we anthony and i you and i have talked about this before but one of the great things about this franchise is that uh you know straight slasher film not your cup of tea that's okay go to a different film and you can have a campy experience that not your cup of tea go to a medieval history fantasy horror that not your cup of tea right there's just so much it's such a unique franchise to have this as you know a steady actor a steady character steady director and yet each one is just its own beast it truly is yeah each one really embraces that it's a singular experience and that you don't necessarily need to have any previous knowledge of the other things that have come before it or things that will come after it in order to have a great time with any one of the the films within the evil dead trilogy or the remake and I assume that's the same way with the TV show. It is. Uh, you know, I think you appreciate it a little bit more if you've seen the journey, um, but you really can treat it as a standalone text. And I'm going to make a bold claim that I'm not sure I'm prepared to, to fully support. Um, Love bold claims that you don't think about. Just just say it. Just yes. say it. Get it out you, there. you should always not think before you speak. Um but I would say oh, that, like... Not like a true academic. That's not like you at all. I know. <laughs> you know, let's just throw critical thinking to the wind. Um, but, like, I think about the Saw franchise, uh, which uh-huh. I, I have a special place in my heart for the first one. I think the first one is actually remarkably well done. And um, I saw it in oh, yeah. German, in Germany, at a time when my German was only, like, so-so. And it's a perfect film because the majority of it's just, like, someone yelling out, nine, right? Like, um, I bet you felt like you knew quite a bit of German after you I did, until the final, like, monologue from Jigsaw where he's like, let me tell you what happened. And I was like, I have, I have no idea what's happening. So, like, independent of the film, I have a special place for the film in my heart. But I also just think it's fun. But when you get to, like, Saw 27 or, or whatever one we're on now, um... If there hasn't been a Saw 27 when you're listening to it, just come back and listen to this in like a, a hundred years and there probably will or be a Saw Or five years, right? Like, I mean... Five years. Yeah. And, and like, the problem is, is that even if you've seen, like, even if you watched the Saw films back to back, which I tried to do once, by Saw, I think it was like six or, or whatever number, um, 
had Donnie Wahlberg in it as like the the main lead. I didn't know what was happening, right? Like I I couldn't keep track of of all the moving pieces and like you know the like. But wait, this was the real Jigsaw, you know. But wait, and and I think that that's that's why a lot of times franchises, period, but especially horror franchises, don't make it. Um, is that they expect you to have to understand their world so much in order to know what's happening next. And and Evil Dead says, nope. <laughs> uh, you know, the, we are going to be a franchise yeah. that you can enjoy um, in its gestalt form or individual pieces. It doesn't matter. I, I Yeah, I think that that's really, that's a very, very interesting point because I think what a lot of horror franchises attempt to do is one-up themselves. I think that's kind of like, in any franchise, you're usually operating within a studio system. They want you to go bigger, bigger, bigger. And so horror franchises respond by getting crazier and creating more and more increasingly convoluted situations for them. Well, Evil Dead, the Evil Dead franchise also goes bigger and does new things. But instead of just one-upping like the gore or one-upping like how many F-bombs the, the lead says or whatever... Evil Dead says, okay, well, what if we just completely reinvent what an Evil Dead movie is? And the, and then it, it works because each thing is a new thing. Every, every film really does feel like it's adding something to the conversation, a new way to do uh, this type of film that has never been seen before. Now, in some, in some ways, that is uh, just like the, with the first one, which we'll, we'll talk more about in just a second, it's just a really well-made Cabin in the Woods film that has incredible use of camera technique and prosthetics and stop-motion animation. The second one is incredibly campy comedy film that just takes the same premise as the first, but just completely reinvents it. And then the third one is in medieval times, just completely a new a new wrinkle altogether. And then the the reboot, you know, offers us. Um that familiar framework but but from the awareness of coming you know 30 years later uh and and having so many cabin films including a film called cabin in the woods um (laughs) and then of course the film uh the tv show just says well what happens when ash is old and tired and we're all tired um of the same story well let's bring a new layer so and and you know i wouldn't say that in any respect is this exclusive to Evil Dead. I think Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise. I was also going to say Nightmare. Excellent. Um, You know, like, because, and and again, you can do that, I think, easier when you approach your subject or your your films with some levity, right? Uh, You know, Nightmare is able to say, but what happened if there were a bunch of kids who all dreamed together, right? Like, they can go there um, because I think that they don't, take that themselves seriously in a way that that I think for example the Saw franchise does right the Saw franchise takes itself so seriously that every film becomes more serious and it just kind of becomes weighed down in a way that I don't think the first film was uh, and in a way that I don't think some of these more clever franchises um it's a lack a real lack of self-awareness um because a lot of times like with horror, we've talked about this before many times on this podcast, the line between horror, comedy, and then also we've talked to thrown in like love and sex are all very, it's like a very thin line between them. And so when the Saw film doesn't recognize that there is some inherent silliness in a little puppet dude uh, setting up torture games, 
it's weird that they don't acknowledge that. It's like, do they do they think they're doing a serious work here? Evil Dead doesn't do that. No, Evil Dead, especially the first film, right? It, it's almost like it's like they wanted so hard to to create this this like straight slasher film, but in the process they created something that they had to immediately acknowledge was a little goofy, and. Mm-hmm. At the same time, one of the things that I like about this film is that it comes across as, like, it just so desperately wants to be, like, a B-rated horror, but it's really good, um, almost against its will. Um, and it's really good because of uh, the the setup, the plot, because of the direction, the cinematography, um, that stop-motion claymation, which just creeps me out. Like, there's so many reasons um, that this film works in ways that I, I truly believe they never anticipated the film working. Yeah, I also, I, I agree. I don't think anyone involved with this thought it was going to turn into this huge success. And I mean, it's hailed as being one of the finest, finest examples of indie filmmaking. One of the, it's held in high regard as one of the best horror films of all time. Certainly one of the best cult films of all time. Uh, but Raimi himself, uh, he was a college student when he was making this. He, he turned, he had just turned 20 right before the actual shooting of this film began. I think you can tell in a couple of ways um, that we have a, a young director, literally and figuratively, uh, both in terms of, you know, there are some things that are not perfect about this film, both in terms of, of just like, some of the decisions in terms of how scenes are portrayed, but also in terms of, of some of the scenes. Um, so we can just talk about the fact that for a long time, I really didn't like this film at all and had a hard time making myself watch it because of the, the forest rape scene, right? Um, but Anthony, you said that Raimi has since gone on to be saddened. Yeah, I mean, again, this he is a 20 year old, which is not an excuse. No. Not, um, but he has since been asked point blank in interviews. Um, he, he was asked this question directly. Do you regret putting it in? And Sam Raimi says he did. And he says that he just thinks it was too unnecessarily gratuitous and too brutal. And he he just did not he did not want to put it in. He, he says himself, quote, I think my judgment was a little wrong at that time. So not a fan and when they do since evil dead 2 is kind of a remake of evil dead mm-hmm. 1 evil dead 2 you see even just when he made that one there's no tree rape scene it does there's the sequence with the tree but it's not a rape and and you're absolutely correct that that to say that someone's 20 and therefore it's okay that they included that right that is not an acceptable statement at no point regardless of age um should you feel that way I can also see, though, where, you know, it would have been easy for them to have been, like, riffing about things to include and be like, oh, and you know what else we could do? You know, and just not having a fully developed prefrontal cortex, um, thinking that that was a good idea or feeling like it was necessary because we needed the the TNA, right, of, of a slasher film. He talked about how he kind of got sucked in to wanting to go as gratuitous and is like, wow that isn't that crazy that they put that in there on this on this shoestring budget that they were able to get this in there isn't wow it's so edgy uh and yeah now he's like that was too much that and so 
on the one hand, this is a film that that is you know the product of a of a young director, but on the other hand, and the reason that the second viewing I I moved it from being like a four star to five star rating in my uh, sort of records is because there's just so much that is right um, about about this that I I feel like. Raimi himself may not have even fully understood in the moment um, how thoughtful he was being, how intriguing he was being um, with the narrative, uh, particularly with the character of Ash. And uh, in a minute, I'll talk about that and bring in my article, but also um, just with with some of the cinematography and, and, and the decisions that he that he made as the director. Mm hmm. One of the things that caught my attention, and then I promise we'll talk about uh, Ash a little bit more, is did you notice that there was a sort of, um, like, it wasn't the full-on Ari Aster, uh, like, rotation of the world, but it was pretty gosh yes. darn close. Yes, I, I did notice that shot. Um, we, we, we commonly talk about, whenever we mention both of Ari Aster's films, that around the world shot, and I was... I, I guess uh, I guess that means Ari Aster has watched himself some Sam Raimi films. <laughs> I mean, I would say that he had to have, right? Like that. That. Oh yeah. Uh, and so, so I would just like to to gently say, you know, while it might be great that Ari Aster puts it in his film, maybe I shouldn't be quite as impressed by by that move, um, because it, it seems like it, it, the credit goes to to Raimi for sure admittedly it is a good move and it does always work and it looks it's it's very effective when used I mean Ari Aster knows how to use it it's true you know, so it does look good when he uses it but yeah it's not although his. I am gonna wonder like 10 films from now right are we still gonna be like my gosh thank you for that like I, I wonder if there's a shelf life um for that particular move I guess we'll find out. We will out. find out. So the article that I want to bring up today is from a edited collection of essays uh, published by McFarland. And the book is called The Many Lives of the Evil Dead, Essays on the Cult Film Franchise. And it's full of just fantastic articles talking about the, the entire um, franchise, as the, the title implies. But the essay I want to particularly focus on, because I think it will be something that we'll come back to throughout our discussions of the Evil Dead films, is an article by Dale Bailey called Final Girl, Final Boy, Ashes Imperiled Masculinity. And in this article, he, Bailey, talks about the fact that Carol Clover gave us this idea of the final girl. And we've talked about the final girl before, you know, it was, it's this, it's, it's the person who survives the slasher, but it's more than that. It's the person who is depicted as sort of a, a masculine coded, uh, coded as a little bit of a masculine character so that the teenage and young men watching uh, the, this character can root for her and root for her survival and sort of see themselves in her. Um, and so that's why we have um, final girls that that are oftentimes uh, have more androgynous names and are coded visually uh, as less, less feminine and they undergo these trials and things like that. And so Clover argues that the final girl is this really intriguing construct that that allows us to 
to feel okay with this person surviving because she's surviving in part because she's not highly sexualized. Um, she's not doing the, the drinking and the drugs and the sex. Um, and then she's also, also if we're going to go real Freudian, you know, often using a phallic-like weapon at the end to defeat the Sasha, right? Mm-hmm. So Bailey says the Evil Dead franchise is not really overwhelmingly brand new in terms of we had slasher films um we had films that were gory we um maybe not primarily in the united states but we did um you know we had the sort of like punk aesthetic we had all these things happening um and so on the one hand evil dead is not revolutionary but on the other hand when it comes to in particular its depiction of um ash and and this depiction of the of what he calls the final boy um it does some really interesting things and so i just kind of wanted to talk about bailey's argument because he makes some excellent points that i think are, are worth considering and are honestly one of the reasons that i have a better opinion of this film upon sort of subsequent screenings so he says that you know from the start ash is is uh coded as being sort of effeminate or feminized. He's not even driving his own car right at the beginning, right? Like, Isn't he in the back? Yeah, he's in the back seat with his uh, sister and girlfriend. And, like, you know, there's that line where um, Scott, is it Scott? Yes. Um, And, you know, Scott is like, did you get this vehicle checked out? And Ash is like, I did, I did. You know, and so, like, there's a whole... um, layer in which he's not only not the the alpha male but he's he's literally with the women um and and later we see scott wandering around the cabin um and uh ash is taking out the luggage with the ladies um and so we we start there and of course his name is ashley which always just kind of cracks me up because that's my middle name so i i personally associate it with with females um and so you know and and his sister makes a huge point of calling him ashley almost more often Mm -hmm. and then there's a whole bunch of other examples of as the film progresses of ash being very feminized right um one of the scenes that made me laugh this time around was um when shelly is like you know all all deadite and and like losing it and scott and ash are just like standing there watching her and like Ash has the the axe in hand and he's still like, I don't know what to do. Do I use it? Right? Like, I mean, this is a film that just makes him into this very um, feminized character. And so much of the film, uh, Dale Bailey argues, so much of the film makes that seem to be a bad thing, right? Because, you know, he's with the ladies. And if only he had been stronger, he would have cut off Linda's um, head or buried her a lot sooner, right? Like, so there's so much of the film makes it seem that because he's not willing to, quote, take action, um, he's responsible for for the second half of the film. But mm-hmm. what I like about da- uh, Bailey's argument is that he says that at the end, though, it's because of, of Ash's more um, feminine, and that's in big quote marks, um, sort of traits, namely his use of this necklace that was part of, you know, this romantic gesture um, to, to, to secure the book and to destroy it and all that stuff, that, the, that we ultimately see that he, he survives because he's not the traditionally masculine uh, male figure. And so this is a film that, that complicates things by showing us that masculinity is complicated um, and that this sort of feminized element can be both your um, 
the thing that destroys you and the thing that saves you simultaneously. Uh, and so I think that's just a really interesting way to read this film and to read this character because a lot of discussions about uh, the Evil Dead franchise are about something that is very important and that is, you know, at what point are we in the horror genre um, presenting toxic max- masculinity? The subject matter we talked about before of like the effeminate man. Uh, we talked about this in our in our episode on the babysitter, uh, actually, and how in that film it is actually it's really painted as he the little kid has to destroy his feminine side, his or what is coded as like female is childish and weak, um, and how that's kind of problematic in presenting in presenting that manner that you have to overcome you as a man have to overcome that in order to be able to succeed, but. Evil Dead does not ask that of you. It doesn't ask that of Ash. No, it doesn't. And, you know, when you said that that the genre um, often gives us these sort of like placeholders, right? We've talked about this too, that that in genres like comedy and horror, um, it can be often difficult to really have developed characters when there's all these other things you're trying to put in there. And so it can be really easy to just say, we're going to have the strong male character. We're going to have the, you know, quiet bookish girl. And and weirdly enough, Evil Dead gives us all of those, right? We have, I mean, like, checkmark, right? We have, uh, you know, the the quote more um, sexualized Shelley. We have the the alpha boy Scott. We have the book of Cheryl, and then we have the sort of like quiet, what should be our final girl, right? And Linda, Um, because at the beginning, Linda's wearing a Michigan State sweater. Um, You know, she's she's fully clothed uh, with like a a turtleneck that goes all the way up. Um, You know, she we expect her to be our sort of final girl. Um, And then we instead, you know, it ends up being Ash, who is this weird sort of amalgamation of of all the things that we say are desirable and undesirable um, in in a male character. Right. And I wouldn't even say that the character of Ash is decidedly like effeminate either in like all around because he's not dressed particularly effeminately or at least not in any way that would like is how is typically depicted of like an effeminate man um he's he is dressed fairly masculine and in a in a fairly man he ash is dressed in a fairly masculine manner and bruce campbell i mean might have the the biggest chin of of like the most you know like i mean he's he is a very rugged looking individual which again we associate as a traditionally masculine uh, appearance and so you're right he's not effeminized but he is he's not effeminate but he is feminized it's yeah it's this weird juxtaposition between like what the outward appearance versus like the actions that the character takes And and I think that, you know, one of the reasons, in my opinion, honestly, that the, the franchise remains successful is because Ash is a surprisingly complex character. You know, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, he's he's very romantically sweet. You know, he gets his girlfriend this this. I, I mean, I thought it was hideous, but this is like lovely necklace. Uh, you know, it's a thoughtful, it's a thoughtful gift. gift. He doesn't seem to be pressuring her, uh, you know, to to make their relationship more physical. He's a pretty good brother. I mean, he's not perfect, but but I'm not sure that Cheryl, uh, you know, is, is a perfect sister. She's kind of obnoxious most of the film, but he tries. Yeah, what, what sibling relationships are perfect? <laughs> I mean, life? certainly not that one. And one of the things I thought was really interesting in this rewatching is, 
that how how intellectual he is, right? Like he's the one that keeps listening to the recording. You know, he's the one that's like putting the pieces together. He's the one that kind of figures out, uh, you know, destroy the book, destroy the deadites. Um, and so I think that that he's a very fascinating character that evolves just as much as the franchise does. Mm-hmm. So we take this unique kind of like hodgepodge of different personality traits and stereotypes and like this weird character of ash and then you what sam raimi brilliantly does is just puts him in this strange character who the audience is not super sure what they're going to do at any time because they don't fit this like mold of any of any stereotype and then you put them in this spectacle driven insane mad world and it's interesting that you use the word spectacle because in terms of mise-en-scene, there's almost, it's like the antithesis of spectacle, right? Everything is grungy and the cabin is tiny. Um, nobody who walks in it would be like, yes, I'm staying here. Um, and yet you're so very correct that this is a, a film that I think needs that word spectacle attached to it. Is there anything in particular that catches your attention or that, that comes to mind first when you think about the spectacle of Evil Dead? Yeah, it's the stop motion animation, Ugh. particularly the stop motion animation from the last third of the film, in which the film just really is like, all right, you thought we had given you some good stuff before, but now we're going to go absolutely bonkers. Yeah, it's... um. This, this film grosses me out in a way that, viscerally, in a way that, that a lot of modern films with all of their CGI just cannot, um, cannot do. Um, yeah. And something about like how it's not, it's truly not trying to replicate what like would actually happen. Like it's, these are technically humans. And so, yeah, I guess they technically, their inside should have real blood and realistic looking organs and whatnot but it's whereas i think like a lot of the cgi when anytime you try to do that it it falls into that uncanny valley where it's like it's just a little off you know it's like a little too perfect in a way and then it makes it a little off well evil dead is like no it's not real you're not gonna you're not gonna believe it's real because it doesn't matter if you believe it's real. Are you going to be grossed out, though, because the style we've chosen to do this in is so incredibly disturbing and specific? Yes. Yes, you are. Yes, and I think you're right that, that what happens is exactly that, that a lot of films accidentally fall into the uncanny valley, and so then it's hard to, to find it as as being what you need it to be, whereas I think Evil Dead said, we're going to live in that valley and we're going to, like, put down, uh, you know, a farmstead and just, like, embrace this. And, and the result is, is that you feel uncomfortable the whole time because it's not right, but that's intentional. And I think, and it's not even just the stop motion, although certainly... Like there was that there's one moment when the, one of the characters is melting and I'm pretty sure it's like cream corn that comes up like that squirt out. I mean, it's just like it's so gross and I love cream corn and it's just like so fundamentally not OK. But it's also things like how once they become deadites, like their hair color doesn't match anymore, uh, you know, uh-huh. because they're clearly wearing wigs and they didn't even attempt oh, yeah to find wigs that would even come close to matching. And so there's just this sense the entire way through um, 
that that everything is off and that should make you feel uncomfortable because it's intentional uh-huh and some of that obviously is due to the the shoestring budget which uh because Ramy himself uh stated that he would need a hundred thousand dollars in order to make the evil dead as he envisioned it do you want to harbor a guess at how much money he was able to cobble together oh i'm so excited i love guessing games i'm gonna say five thousand okay so that would be incredibly impressive if he was able to do it but it is a little more than that it was ninety thousand dollars uh, and he, it's funny to read about like how he got that money. He basically just begged people to give him money and that's how, and he still was able to beg for, for and successfully acquired $90,000. So I guess that's pretty good. Yeah, begging. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that's not the amount I would get if I started begging. Um, yeah. but, but, but again, like you, you see like the discrepancy of like, he wanted, uh, he wanted a hundred thousand dollars. He didn't quite get there. And so they had to cut corners he couldn't do exactly what he wanted to do and so they came up with a lot of like weird and new ways to do special effects and those weird like things like the mishmashing wigs maybe if he had gotten all of the money that they wanted they could have gotten real wigs but they didn't and so they worked with it and it looks incredible and things like you know the 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 famous and deservedly so famous uh you know camera work just, yeah just incredible Incredible cinematography all around from Tim Philo. Just yes, so and, good. And you know, I think this is a perfect instance of with more money, they wouldn't have had to come up with this creative solution of how do we show that the evilness is lurking and watching without actually, you know, having the evil. Uh, you know, if if they'd had more money, they might have tried to do special effects or had someone in costume or you know anything like that instead of giving us this POV shot where that we you know, talk about a low budget uh, move. This is just a perfect example of, of how um, sometimes what a, the, a horror film needs is a smaller budget um, to be more creative about how to do things. Like that, the camera work, all of the Dutch angles that Raimi would, would use throughout the filming, uh, this shocked the crew who was expecting to be able to just use the standard cameras that they had, their rigs, and just like set up line up a shot shoot it straight we'll be we'll get it get in and out of here but they literally because again i just said they have a shoestring budget they can't afford a camera dolly to get those really precise uh dutch angle shots and so instead they just built incredibly elaborate low budget rigs in order to get the the dutch angles that Raimi requested and some of the shots that are low angles right i'm thinking especially about when they're looking down into the cellar um, you know, don't want to, can't afford to have a tricked out cellar. Uh, that's fine. Let's not show the cellar. Let's show people looking down at the cellar. Um, yep. And I think, you know, just a number of really inventive ways. And I would imagine that, that part of the reason that they couldn't afford these other things was that most of their budget was going to fake blood. Um, because just the sheer amount of, of fake blood in this film is just, you know, like when the pipe bursts and it's just like in his mouth and face and everything. I mean, it's just wanna, astonishing. You want to do another guessing game? <gasps> I love guessing games. You want to guess. So I'm going to tell you. So the traditional blood formula is corn syrup and food coloring. Do you want to do, can you guess what extra ingredient was added to this traditional fake blood formula for this film? 
I'm going to say that they went Hitchcock and put in uh, Hershey's syrup. That would be a great guess. It's actually on the other end of the spectrum. It's coffee. They added coffee. And, you know, I as I was watching it, I was actually thinking about the fact that, um, especially compared to a lot of the films from the 70s, the blood in Evil Dead is, is so much darker. Uh, you know, uh, one it probably because it had coffee in it. Because it had coffee. Because, you know, in, in Dawn of the Dead, the, the 78 one, I mean, that blood is like as red as red can be. I mean, it's almost like on a spectrum where you're like, is that even still red or is that just pink? Um, but, but yeah, coffee, that would make sense. Oh, look at me learning things. Yeah, new, that's a new fun fact that everyone can use now. And you, when you were talking about the camera work and sort of the inventiveness of it, um, you mentioned when we were talking earlier the final scene uh, where yes. uh, the evil is, um, you know, charging at Ash and how that scene was uh, crafted. Yeah, that it's it, it's become a bit of like an urban legend, like part of the part of the film itself is that in order to get that shot, they they actually had Raimi get on a motorcycle with a camera in hand and ride after Bruce Campbell on the motorcycle with the camera while filming that scene. And so the, the sort of like urban legendy part of it is, is that, you know, the, the expression on Bruce Campbell's face is perhaps the best, uh, most authentic expression because he's actually terrified that he's going to be plowed down, uh, by his friend. Uh, and whether or not, you know, that part is as true, I, I don't know. Which, you know, it would make sense with the rest of the narrative of the film because Raimi has come out and quoted that he loves torturing his actors. Um, he And one of the producers, uh, Robert Tappard, said that uh, Raimi enjoyed when an actor bled. So, um, yeah, he, there are like, tons of injuries from the set. So if that had actually happened, it would make sense. And I think that's also the advantage of a sort of... Um indie type film right is that you can have a connection between your your actors and your uh you know crew that's going to be the the lines are going to be blurred a little bit more right like it's going to be all of it's going to be a little less professional uh you know if you read about like the production of this film there's lots of things where they said yep that was an accident but you know it worked out um and you know that's what happens when you have no budget to replace things if they get broken uh in in a round of, of filming yeah and they just because of how hectic the the shoot was um Raimi just forgot to shoot some shots that would tie things together so they had to freak like try to get people back together again for to do four days of frantic reshoots um just because in the it's a low budget you're doing this with your like a lot of your friends you're a 20 you're a 20 year old yeah of course it makes sense you you missed a couple of shots I guess exactly (laughs) yes it reminds me very much of Peter Jackson's 1987 film Bad Taste in that it was another indie film where it was just like a group of friends filming and they fil- they filmed it whenever they could get together and so if you watch the film sometimes an actor will have a beard um, and sometimes he won't and it has nothing to do with a you know passage of time it just has to do with you know uh, again that sort of there's something almost magical um, that can emerge out of an indie project because of the sort of frenetic energy that I think is associated yeah. with the budget and everything. And it's just a, it's a different feeling than when watching uh, like a corporate made film because it, with corporate films 
everything feels so tested and like it, it cold almost in a way that not not the good cold where you're like oh i don't know oh i don't know if i like how that makes me feel um but cold in like the way of like okay a lot of people gathered around and made sure that this was going to appeal to the most amount of people and or, we've talked about the fact that films like um 28 days later have multiple endings because of, of sort of what the audience preferred. Um, we've mm-hmm. talked about mm-hmm. how with uh, Hereditary uh, by Aster that um, our biggest complaint about the film seems to be from the fact that there was a disagreement about what the studio thought the film should do versus what he wanted to do. So he kind of just threw in some witches um, <laughs> to take care of things. And and this, this isn't that, right? This is a film that had a very clear vision um, and carries that vision through Again, I think through all of these different elements, and one of the things we haven't talked about, but but I want to mention is I think that Linda uh, is one of the most disturbing uh, components of this film. I think that when she just kind of like pops up anywhere and everywhere, and she's just sitting there laughing, and again, to go back to that idea of the uncanny, more so than Cheryl. So Cheryl's makeup is just you know over the top deadite. So is Shelley's, but uh-huh. but Linda's is just a little shy of being actual like beautiful makeup right because she has what looks like blue eyeshadow it's just above her eyelids um you Uh know and and so it's really interesting again how this film just embraces the fact that you know you're gonna feel uncomfortable because things are gonna look exactly the opposite of or just enough off of how you expect them to look yeah yeah it's a and also her physical performance is really just excellent it is and it's interesting because you know at first she's the character is 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 on the scale kind of the least important right um and least interesting and least interesting i think that's really what i mean least interesting right because cheryl uh you know has already had her panic attack um you know ash is is the is a rugged handsome lead scott is you know jovial uh shelly is sherry shelly shelly is you know the the quote pretty one whatever that means um and linda just kind of is there uh but then i think she does she becomes the most disturbing and of course also the most humorous uh one of the sources of humor because we have uh ash having his breakdown and saying things like shut up linda you know and so i think it's really interesting um again to go back to the sort of sophisticated reading of the film I think we could talk about Evil Dead for a while. Unfortunately, we will keep talking about the the franchise uh, for a while. But Mm -hmm. we are going to, uh, between this film, uh, discussing this film and discussing Evil Dead 2, we are going to uh, have a sort of palate cleanser by talking about... Uh, 1992's Candyman. Yes. And so, in many ways, a a sharp departure. But on the other hand, uh, another film that's really gained a sort of cult following and that has done some really important things by taking a very familiar framework yeah so we encourage you to listen to our uh, or to watch that film so that you're ready to listen to our discussion on Candyman. and in the meantime be sure to give us a like and write a review wherever you get your podcasts from and re- remember to share us with your friends and follow us on social media thank you very much bye-bye <laughs>